Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I'll read the first eight verses of that chapter, and then I'll pray one more time. Mark writes this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, Comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Saints, please join me now in prayer. God, you tell us that your word gives life and makes wise. Father, by your Holy Spirit now, would you come to us and revive us by your word? Would you give us ears to hear what you say, hearts to understand, eyes to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ? Lord, would you help me to handle your word faithfully and accurately? Would you impress it on our hearts? Lord, would you form Christ in us as we listen to you this morning? Do these things, we pray, for your glory and for our joy, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you are a concert goer, you will be familiar with the concept of the opening act. The idea is that at a concert performed by a famous band, a usually less famous band will play the first few songs. Opening acts are supposed to get the crowd warmed up for the band playing later, and it's usually their own goal uh, to gain notoriety for, by performing for a bunch of people who didn't buy tickets to see them. Well, sometimes in music history, the opening act has actually gone on to surpass the band they've opened for. So in 1974, there was a British rock band called Mott the Hoople. Any Mott the Hoople fans here today? Well, the opening act for a Mott the Hoople concert in 1974 was none other than a little rock band called Queen. Needless to say, Queen went on to become one of the most famous rock bands of all time. In 2008, the opening act for Rascal Flats. Anyone remember Rascal Flats? Rascal Flats fans? A few Rascal Flats fans? Okay. Well, the, the opening act for Rascal Flats in 2008 was... A young girl named Taylor Swift. I'm not going to ask anyone to confess to Taylor Swift fandom this morning, but we can all agree she is more popular at this point. Better I can't say, but more popular. Opening acts are supposed to be about preparing for something to come later. But sometimes 
They're actually just a way to self-promote by hooking your wagon to another bigger and better wagon to get some publicity. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Mark, and I am truly excited to dive into Mark's Gospel with all of you. There in the very first verse of Mark's Gospel, we're told that this is a book about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Gospel of Mark is an account of the good news about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophesied Messiah, who is none other than the eternal Son of God. He is who the Gospel of Mark is about. Of course, we know that the whole Bible is designed to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but I, for one, am excited to study the Lord Jesus more immediately or more directly, so to speak, as we walk through a gospel together. What we find in these opening verses of Mark's gospel, this story about Jesus, is that it actually begins not with Jesus himself, but, so to speak, with an opening act. The first verse of Mark's gospel tells us this is a story about Jesus, but Mark chapter 1 verses 2 to 8 are focused on someone else, a man named John, John the Baptist as he's called elsewhere. John is described as a man sent by God to get things ready immediately prior to the arrival of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. So before, I'm sorry, so this morning as we start our series in Mark, I want us to do two things. First, very briefly, I want us just to consider some background info about this book of Mark and about Mark, its author. And then second, I want us to consider the ministry of this person that we encounter in these first eight verses, John the Baptist. John is the opening act in this drama of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before it's all over, I want us to take a look at the attitude of John toward the character who's coming after him. So first, a little bit of background to the gospel of Mark. What do we need to know about Mark's gospel and who even was Mark? Well, it's believed that the author of this gospel is the man named John Mark, uh, who's mentioned in the book of Acts and in three of Paul's letters and in the letter of 1 Peter. John Mark's family, at least his mother, lived in Jerusalem during the early years of the Christian church. Mark himself was very briefly a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, although he returned to Jerusalem before Paul's first missionary journey. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. You might remember Mark is actually the reason that Paul and Barnabas end up splitting up because Mark had left the first missionary journey early. And when Paul and Barnabas wanted to go out again, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin Mark along again. But Paul said, no, we, we shouldn't take him. And so Paul and Barnabas split ways. Mark was a prominent figure in the early church, but church history tells us that Mark himself was not actually an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, the second century church father, Papias, or Papias, tells us that Mark wrote down the reflections of the apostle Peter. Uh, there seems to have been a close relationship between Peter and Mark. Toward the end of 1 Peter, Peter calls Mark his son, not speaking literally, of course, but uh, speaking about their close spiritual kinship and friendship. 
Uh, So it's not certain, but it seems like what we're getting in the Gospel of Mark is in large part Peter's account of his time with the Lord Jesus. Lord willing, we'll see that that will become significant, that this is Peter's version of events. Many scholars believe Mark wrote this book around 50 or 60, in the 50s or the 60s AD. It seems very likely that Mark was the first gospel written. Uh, Matthew and Luke both appear to be dependent on Mark's text in various ways. Uh, In terms of the structure of the book of Mark, scholars have noted that Mark seems to be divided uh, pretty neatly in half toward the end of chapter 8. So the first half of Mark's book, chapters 1 to 8, it focuses primarily on the question of who Jesus is. And the second half of the book, chapters 9 to 16, they focus on what it means to follow Jesus, as well as on Jesus' sufferings and death, or what it is that he came to do. Scholars have also pointed out that there's kind of a geographical flow to the narrative of Mark. So let me ask the AV team to put up the map that I hand drew for you all this week. I'm sorry, it's from the ESV Study Bible. Um, So here we are, uh, first century Palestine. There it is. So the first half of Mark, chapters 1 to 8, take place almost entirely around Galilee up in the north. So you see that body of water up there. That's the Sea of Galilee often we'll see Jesus zipping back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. That's where the action in the first eight chapters primarily takes place. Uh, Chapters uh, 9 to 10 really record Jesus' journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. You see Jerusalem about one-fourth of the way up the map there in the south uh, in Judea. Chapters 9 and 10 really record the journey. I think five times in that section, Mark says, on the way, while Jesus is on the way. And then chapters 11 to 16 uh, record, of course, Jesus' sufferings and death, the final week of his life in Jerusalem. It's very interesting. Mark devotes uh, nine chapters or or 10, I'm sorry, Mark devotes eight chapters to a three-year ministry and almost as much space to the final week of Jesus' life. That should tell you something about how significant that final week is in the life and ministry of Jesus. Thank you. You can can take the map down now. Uh, It seems from some of the explanations that Mark gives that he's writing for a Gentile, primarily probably a Roman audience. Mark explains things that he probably wouldn't uh, take the trouble to explain if his audience were primarily Jewish. It's also worth noting that in Mark's day, Christians were an ostracized, suffering fringe group in society. And it seems like one of Mark's purposes in writing is to point out that Christians follow an ostracized, suffering Messiah, who is nonetheless still the Son of God. And so Mark seems to be trying to show that Christian suffering and marginalization are to be expected given the kind of Messiah uh, that we follow. Some elements in Mark's gospel seem especially evangelistic. Uh, Mark seems to be interested both in helping Christians follow Jesus more closely, uh, but also in persuading unbelievers to follow Jesus, maybe even helping other believers persuade others to follow Jesus. So that's what you need to know 
about this gospel of Mark. Its author is Mark, John Mark. His source is probably Peter, writing in the late 50s, early 60s. He's probably writing for a Roman audience. He's focused on who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, and he wants to show that Christians following follow a suffering Messiah. So that is our first point, some background to the gospel of Mark. With the rest of our time, second, let's just consider what Mark tells us about the ministry of this character, John the Baptist. This morning, I want us to see four features of John's ministry. So first, notice that John's ministry is a prophesied ministry. In our English translations, there's a period after verse 1. Some translators actually think there shouldn't be a period there, but a comma connecting verses 1 and 2. And if that's right, and I, I think that it is, the sense of that first verse and a half is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ took place just as it is written in Isaiah that it would take place. So we don't get two verses into this book before Mark is quoting the Old Testament. Mark says there that he's quoting Isaiah the prophet. Uh, Interestingly, the quotation from Isaiah doesn't start in verse 2. It starts in verse 3. And that's because Mark is actually quoting three different Old Testament passages here. So the first two lines there in verse 2. Those come from two other Old Testament passages kind of smushed together. One of them being Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, and another being Exodus chapter 23 verse 20. So really what we have here is one amalgam quotation from Exodus and Malachi, and another from Isaiah. But Isaiah was the most famous of the writing prophets, so it seems like that's why Mark mentions him. So here's what all three Old Testament passages that Mark quotes have in common. They're all about a messenger preparing the way for God's salvation. So in the Exodus quotation, written 1,300 years at least before Mark is writing, God is telling the fresh out of Egypt nation of Israel, who are in the wilderness, by the way, He's telling them that before he brings them into the promised land, he says, I'm going to send my messenger before you or my angel before you, Israel, to clear your way as you enter the promised land. Well, in the Malachi quotation, Malachi chapter 3, again written about 500 years before Mark is writing, God is telling Israel that before he himself comes to visit his people, to purify them and to make them pleasing to himself, he intends to send his preparatory messenger to prepare the way for his arrival. By the way, in Malachi chapter 4, the next chapter, that preparatory messenger seems to be identified as Elijah the prophet. We're going to see that's relevant in a moment. And then third and finally, in the Isaiah quotation, Isaiah writing around 700 years before Mark, or maybe even 800, uh, the context of that quote is the beginning of a section of prophecy that predicts the restoration of God's people to the promised land after the exile. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 that God is coming to save his people 
And his coming is going to be foretold by a voice crying out in preparation in the wilderness. When you know it, there in verse 4, Mark tells us that John appeared in the wilderness, baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And notice that the way that Mark describes John is in order to highlight that he is the fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy. The prophecy speaks about a messenger crying out. Well, Mark doesn't just say John appeared and he was baptizing. He says that John appeared proclaiming a baptism. Right? Isaiah had prophesied a messenger, and Mark highlights John is a messenger crying out about a need for repentance and baptism. Down there in verse 7, we're told again about John's preaching We'll see that he is indeed, as Isaiah predicted, preparing the way for God to come and save his people. There in verse 6, we learn about John's attire and his diet. Mark tells us, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. In other words, John is wearing an Elijah the prophet costume. So in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, what we learn is that Elijah the prophet wore a leather belt and a garment of hair. In the passage from Matthew that Jarrett read for us earlier, Jesus explicitly identifies John the Baptist as the Elijah figure who was to come, as prophesied by Malachi. So the story of Mark's gospel starts this way. John the Baptist, the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, appears. And he does exactly what God's word prophesied that he would do. John's ministry is a prophesied ministry. Here's why that matters. John's prophesied ministry is a witness to us today that Jesus is in fact God's Messiah. This is very similar to what we thought about together on Easter morning. One of the signature moves of the God of the Bible is to predict what he is going to do beforehand and then to bring it to pass, to demonstrate that he is in control and to convince us to take his interpretation of what's happened. Well, the ministry of John the Baptist is yet another instance of God supplying evidence and witnesses to confirm that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Right? If it If it weren't enough for God to lace the Old Testament with patterns and predictions of Jesus coming, God predicted beforehand that he would raise up an Elijah-like messenger who would predict beforehand the coming of the Messiah immediately after him. Right? John's ministry was not some obscure thing that Mark could have made up and gotten away with it. In verse 5, we're told that all the country of Judea And all Jerusalem were going out to John to be baptized by him. John's ministry was massively popular. In fact, it was so popular that 50 years later or so, John's ministry gets written about by the Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're not certain what you make of Mark's claim that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, If you're not certain what you make of Jesus' claim to be Lord of all things, including our lives, well, if that's you, first of all, we're we're so glad that you're here. We hope you feel welcome to be here. 
If that's you, then, then here in God's word, in its account of John the Baptist's ministry, God bearing witness to you, hey, this Jesus who came right after the prophesied messenger, as God's word said he would, this Jesus is the Christ. He is, in fact, the Son of God. His claims are legit. His lordship is authoritative. John's prophesied ministry confirms the veracity of Christ's lordship. That's the first feature of John's ministry. It is a prophesied ministry. Second feature of John's ministry, John's is a God-centered ministry. It's a God-centered ministry. So what is John out in the wilderness doing? He's crying out. He's a messenger. Okay, great. What's he crying out about? What's his message? Well, in John's day, there were lots of things to cry out about. Israel was under oppressive Roman occupation. It was a time of great social injustices and inequalities and prejudices. The religious establishment was corrupt and hypocritical. Many, many people, especially in Israel's countryside, lived in deep poverty. What is the headline of what John's life is dedicated to crying out about? John will talk about some of those other things, but what's front and center in John's message? What does the prophecy from Isaiah tell us? Isaiah tells us, that this voice is here to cry out, to prepare for the coming of God to save. We've already mentioned that the prophecy in Isaiah that that verse is taken from, that's about God's promise to bring his people back from exile, which is really strange because neither John nor the people that he's speaking to are in exile, at least not physically, right? That map that we put up earlier, that's a map of the promised land. But if you've read the Old Testament end to end, you'll know that even though God did bring Israel back into Palestine, they had not fully returned to him. So to speak, they were still spiritually far from him. Spiritually, they were still in exile. So John did not appear in preparation for God to bring Israel back to Palestine, but in preparation for God coming to bring his people back to himself. Look again at verse 4. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That all sounds very biblical. What does it mean? Well, first, it means that part of John's ministry was to call Israelites to participate in a religious ritual called baptism, in which a person was most likely immersed by John in water. So this begs the question, where did this idea of baptism come from? Why, where did John get this idea to dunk people in a river? And what does it mean? Well, two things to say about that. So first, it seems like baptism picks up on some of the Old Testament's imagery of God's people passing through waters and emerging safe on the other side. So think, for example, of how Noah passes through the floodwaters and emerges safe by God's grace. By the way, Peter calls Noah's experience a baptism. 
Or think about the Exodus when the people of God pass through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. The Egyptians are drowned, but God's people emerge from judgment safely. By the way, Paul calls that experience of the Red Sea a baptism. Right? In the Bible, God's people are saved as they pass through waters of judgment and emerge alive by his grace. Very interesting. The second thing to say about the background of John's baptism, a commentator, R.T. France, says this. He says, many believe that the most likely Jewish precedent for John's baptism is the ritual cleansing by immersion of a Gentile on becoming a proselyte. So if you were not a Jew in the first century, but you wanted to become a Jew, part of that process involved being immersed in water as a symbol of cleansing from your past life. The image is that the way you've lived as a non-Jew was, was dirty and your moral character and your past life needed to be washed off. So what's so amazing here is that John is inviting Jews to be baptized. He's inviting the people of Israel to be baptized. He's saying that even though they had the correct religious background, even though they might have been born to parents who loved God, each one of them needed a personal change of heart. By the way, us today, even if we have Christian parents, even if we've attended church all our life, even if we were the kid who knew all the answers in Sunday school, we, each one of us, still need to turn to repent of sin and trust in Christ in order to be saved. And Mark calls John's baptism a baptism of repentance. Repentance most basically means changing your mind or turning around. If you're driving north and then you repent, guess what? You're driving south. So, so why does John call Israel to be baptized? Why does he call Israel to repent? What's wrong with the direction that they're headed now? Well, Mark tells us it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's ministry was focused on the problem at the root of all problems, which is the problem of our sin and alienation from the God who made us. The point of John's proclamation of baptism was that God was providing a way for all who would turn from sin toward him to be washed to be forgiven, to escape from judgment, to survive judgment by his grace, to be reconciled with the God who made them. The primary aim of John's ministry was not to improve society's morals. It was not to alter their political situation. It wasn't even to minister to their temporary sufferings. The ultimate aim of John's ministry was to point them toward repentance toward God toward the forgiveness of their sins, to point them toward reconciliation with the God who made them. John's ministry was a thoroughly God-centered ministry. I think John's ministry reminds us that ultimately, the greatest good that we as a church can do for the world is to hold out the gospel of reconciliation 
is to hold out the message that through repentance, God will wash and save sinners through Jesus Christ, that he will restore all who turn to him in faith to right relationship with him. And as Christians, the most important thing we can do is to walk in right relationship with that God, to live lives of continual repentance, lives in which we are continually turning away from the things that God calls us to turn away from, to turn toward the things that God calls us to turn toward and toward himself. The best thing that we can do for our families, for our neighbors, is to tend to our relationship with God. It's to walk closely with him, to order our lives by his good commandments. Now, you might think that that would turn us inward as hyper-spiritual people who are too heavenly-minded to do any earthly good. But historically, that is exactly opposite of what happens. Interestingly, nothing in the history of the world has alleviated more human suffering or improved society more or led to more people doing more good than this message preached about the forgiveness of sins. That's because our heart's disposition toward God is the very fountain of all our other action. It has everything to do with how we live in the world, how we treat our neighbor. David Pallison puts it this way. He says, becoming more holy does not mean that you become ethereal, ghostly, and detached from the storms of life. It means you're becoming a wiser human being. You're learning how to deal well with your money, your sexuality, your job. You're becoming a better friend and family member. When you talk, your words communicate more good sense, more gravitas, more joy, more reality. You're learning to pray honestly, bringing who God really is to the reality of human need. John's ministry was dead centered on reconciliation between God and people, the forgiveness of sins through the gospel. Saints, that's how God intends to transform us and to bring blessing to those around us. So as a church, I pray that we do more and more good works and service. I pray we do more, not less, of thinking strategically about how to love and serve our neighbors and do them good and bring blessing and relieve suffering in the places that God has put us. I don't want us to do less of that. I think God would want us to do more of that. I think John's God-centered ministry, it reminds us that our church does that best when we keep front and center the message that we are sinners against a holy God who need to repent, who need the washing symbolized by baptism, who need God's offer of forgiveness of sins. John's ministry we see is a God-centered ministry. John was sent by God to prepare for God, I'm sorry, prepare for God himself to come and address the root of our problems third feature of John's ministry. John's was an uncomfortable ministry. It was an uncomfortable ministry. John lived in the wilderness. He lived off the land. He ate locusts and honey. Honey sounds fine. Not so sure about the locusts. Jesus points out in Matthew 11, which Jarrett read for us, John didn't exactly wear soft clothing. Right? If you or I met John... I think we might be tempted to try to help him get into a homeless shelter. He probably needs a shower, although he's been in the Jordan, so maybe he's fine. But I I would be tempted to bring John some Adidas shorts and a North Face hoodie, right? 
But John thinks that other people who have more comfortable lives than him need something that he is pointing them toward. So the most important factor in play in John's mind is not the relative ease and prosperity of people now. So it's important to note, John dresses how he dresses and he lives how he lives because he occupies a very specific place in redemptive history, right? As Jesus says, he is Elijah who was to come and we are not, right? So the application is not go sell your silk pajamas and buy camel's hair. And the point is also not that discomfort is good. Please don't go out and get rid of all of the comfortable things you have. That's not the point. But it is worth observing that to John and to God, it's more important to be faithful to what God has called him to do than to be comfortable. So listen, comfort, comfort is good. If you have good, comfortable things in your life, thank God for them. But friends, I think sometimes we can live like there are 11 commandments instead of 10. And the 11th is, thou shalt not make sacrifices which lead to discomfort. Brothers and sisters, remember God's highest priority for his people is not that they avoid all hardship. Our, our wise and loving father does at times call us to serve him in ways that are not maximally comfortable. And the witness of God's people in the scriptures is that it's better to be near Jesus and to serve him faithfully than to be self-preserving. Even as I preach this, I, I just recognize how much I want to avoid inconvenience and suffering and discomfort. I wonder if I'm not the only one. But friends, let this encourage us this morning. John the Baptist, he had a pretty uncomfortable life, to put it mildly. Right? We'll see more about that later in Mark's gospel. But right now, John is comfier than we are. I, I don't know how comfy you are in the pew this morning, but John after his long ministry in camel's hair and his locust diet, after his suffering in prison, after his death at the hands of Herod, he is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, having done what God called him to do faithfully. So listen, extra discomfort is not on my prayer list for myself or anyone in the church, but may God strengthen us, brothers and sisters, to walk through everything to which he calls us faithfully. John's ministry was a prophesied ministry. It was a God-centered ministry. It was an uncomfortable ministry. Fourth and finally, John's ministry was a Christ-exalting ministry. This is, after all, not the beginning of the gospel of John, the messenger, but the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look with me at verse 7. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. In God's good plan, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way before Jesus, and John suffers no confusion about his relative importance compared to Jesus. John is not an opening act whose goal is to enhance his own fan base who dreams as big of being as big as the act that follows him. Right? Think about this. John says, the one who's coming after me, not only is he mightier than I, 
He's so much more glorious. He's so important. He's so wonderful. He's so much more central to God's plan for the universe. He's so holy that if I had the opportunity to stoop down and untie his sandals for him, I wouldn't be qualified. I wouldn't be worthy. Saints, do we think about the Lord Jesus this way? Do we remember his great glory and worthiness? Or is our service to him something that we use as a platform for advancing our own ends? Do we recognize the all-surpassing worth, right? the total supremacy, the incomparable glory and worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, do this with me. Think about a time recently when you were angered or frustrated by the way that someone treated you, maybe something someone said to you. Well, more than likely, at the root of your frustration and anger over that is the judgment, I am worthy of better than how you're treating me right now. You are not treating me as I ought to be treated as a person. Friends, listen, our great problem, the sin from which we need to be saved, which we were talking about a minute ago, our sin is that we have treated God like that. We have failed to honor and thank and trust him as he is due for who he is and for all that he's done. We failed to esteem his matchless worth. But friend, this is the amazing news of the gospel. The one who came after John, the one so worthy and glorious that we aren't worthy to untie his shoes, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the all-surpassingly worthy one, he came to save unworthy sinners by dying on a cross as a substitute, as a ransom, and by rising from the dead so that John's proclamation that all who repent and turn to God will be forgiven can be true. Jesus died to save sinners. Jesus is alive. And as John says there in verse 8, all who trust in Jesus will for receive the forgiveness of sins and will have God's own Holy Spirit poured out on them to dwell with them, to change them, to make them like Christ. John says, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Saints, the baptism of the Holy Spirit here, it is not a special second blessing that really spiritual Christians get after they convert. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that every Christian receives when they trust in Christ and are united to him in faith. So let me close with this. Here at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark has introduced us to the man that God had promised would come and prepare the way for God's great salvation from sin. And in the life of that man, we see what happens to those who understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We see a man devoted to magnifying not himself, but Jesus, who is God come to save us, the giver of the Holy Spirit. We see a man whose life is characterized by these words which he spoke as recorded in another gospel. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God would produce that heart in us by his grace. Let's pray. Father, forgive our great coldness toward your son, the Lord Jesus. God, forgive us for losing sight of who he is and what he's done for us in coming to save us. Lord, forgive our worship of comfort and ease. God, as we study through Mark's gospel, would you give us the heart of John the Baptist that sees in Christ one so glorious that we know that we're not worthy to be his servants? God, would you thrill us again with the good news that that Jesus loves us and has died for us and has filled us with his spirit? Lord, would you help us to live lives of continual repentance, continual turning to you from all that displeases you? God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.